My name is Daniel. I haven't been here in a few months. I'm so happy to be back. I serve alongside with Logan, who I'm sure you're used to seeing, who preaches here pretty often at Park Slope Community Church. Uh, And I love getting to come see you guys from time to time. Love getting to worship with you and just uh, see some familiar faces. So, so glad to be here. And I'm continuing on what Logan has been preaching on, which is shame interrupted. And we're looking at stories in the Bible that deal with shame. And how does our faith interact with that? And as I begin, I want to ask you a question. If you were to ask your, uh, let's say, non-Christian, non-religious coworker, family member, someone you live with, whatever, if you were to ask them, what do you think is the message of Christianity? What is the quintessential message of Christianity? What do you think they would say? Do you think they would say, oh, well, of course, it's the religion where everybody is welcome. And at the foot of the cross, all can be saved. And everyone is welcome there. What they call it a message of complete love, that you can be accepted and known and cared for. Would they point to all of the orphanages and hospitals and churches and homeless shelters that have been started because of churches and Christian missionaries? Or... Would they kind of laugh and say, well, it's a primitive way for modern people to deal with their thoughts of mortality and guilt that is at best unintelligent and at worst dangerous? Probably the latter, right? Like, I, I know it's the latter. Even this week, I was in line at a coffee shop, and I struck up conversation with the person behind me. And uh, it came up that I was a believer. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't force it in there, you know, but I was just, it came up naturally. I was a believer. And the person identified as a former believer. And I said, well, tell me about the former. What does that mean? And they said, well, you know, they, they had a really good experience raised in a Christian home where things were, were good. But as they got older, they felt like Christianity for them came more about affirming what is bad than what they were for. They said it had to do with things about sexuality or, or Trump or whatever. And I thought it was so interesting That this person, for them, the message of Christianity, as they lived on, got worse, not better. And so I wanted to ask, as we think together, what happened? How did we get here? Where, Where most people in the West would look at what you and I are doing today, and they would call it, at best, a waste of time, and at worst, harmful to society. And I'm I'm not going to answer that question of how we got here. I don't even, that's for someone, I don't know how to do that. But what I want to do is I want to look at a story in the Gospels where we get to see Jesus show us what is the core message of Christianity as a way to reorient our hearts and our minds to remind ourselves what is the main message of Christianity. And shame is right in the middle of it. And seeing how Jesus deals with it is just masterful. So if you will, turn with me in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 19. Going to start in verse 1. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because, as we say in Bible school, he was a wee little man. 
So he ran on ahead and climbed up onto a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, they being the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we begin with this introduction to a character named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we are told in the text in verse 2, we're told two things about him. He is a tax collector. Now, really quick uh, and not boring short version of, of Roman history. Rome was one of the most powerful empires still in recorded history. Very powerful. And they were obsessed with one thing, which was expansion. They wanted their kingdom to grow in every which way possible. And so when they would conquer a land, what they would do to show you that they were in charge is they would oppress you. They would kill family members. They would take your homes. They would take your resources. They would let you know who's in charge. And not only would you be oppressed by them, but they would expect you to give them the taxation that you would actually have to fund the very oppression that you were experiencing. But they were so big, they themselves couldn't collect it. So what they would do is they would grab someone in your tribe, in your neighborhood, someone that you knew you grew up with, and they would make them the tax collector. And so all of a sudden, you would have this person who used to be a part of your tribe. They would turn on you, and they would begin to demand money from you to fund the very oppression that you were experiencing. Tax collectors were hated. They were seen as traitors, and they were absolutely despised in the community. But historically, tax collectors, it was not a good job. They didn't make a lot of money. But notice in verse 2, the text says, also Zacchaeus was rich, which tells us that Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector, but he was adding more to the top of the taxes. He was saying, actually, you owe a little bit more, and he would take for himself just a little bit more. And so all of a sudden, this guy who's already flipped, who's already making you fund the oppression, is now stealing your money to fund his lifestyle. And as I was trying to look at commentaries this week to trying to find, like, how, like, how do you explain how bad a tax collector was in the society? Every commentator was like, we can't explain it. It's like the worst position. Everybody despised them. So when we meet Zacchaeus, it is not this short, cute little guy, like, Everybody hated him, right? And I actually, I think, honestly, when I was thinking about what's a cultural equivalent, think of like your rental broker. Like someone you give money to and you're like, this should, like, this feels illegal. You just showed me an apartment and you get a month's worth of rent. I have no idea how this works. It's not right and it shouldn't be right. But something of that nature, and if you're a rental broker, we love you. So welcome here. Um, But, so he is this person that is, uniformly despised. And the text tells us that he's not only a tax collector, not only is he rich, but he's the chief tax collector. He is the top dog. And so as we go into this story, don't think of Zacchaeus as someone who has any type of status other than his people would have saw him as someone who was like a beggar. They would have no respect for him whatsoever. 
But as we get introduced to Zacchaeus, we see that the crowd won't let him see Jesus, right? In verse three, it says the crowd was not gonna, they weren't gonna help him. They're not gonna help this guy that oppresses them. What does Zacchaeus do in response? He climbs a tree, which, I mean, it's, it wasn't very honorable then, nor is it now. If you see an adult climb a tree, you're like, are you okay, right? So it's like, it's not, it's not a, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing that's going on here. But what I want you to notice is this is an honor-shame society we're dealing with in the Bible. Are things honor or are they shameful? And Zacchaeus is already considered one of the most shameful people in the entire New Testament, if you will. And he does something even more shameful, and he climbs a tree. And some people interpret that, and they say, oh, Zacchaeus is acting in character. He's doing more shameful things on top of his already shameful lifestyle. But the more and more I read this story, I read it less as shame and more as desperation. That whatever dignity Zacchaeus had left, he was willing to forsake it to climb that tree just to see Jesus. That if any respect was left for him in his community, he said, it just ain't worth it. I want to climb the tree just to see Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you and I have climbed the tree? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when is the last time we didn't care about our identity? We didn't care about the status we held in our society and our families. We didn't care about how much money we made. We didn't care about the groups we were associated with. We just wanted to see and to be with Jesus. When's the last time we have felt that? That seeing God and being with God was worth being laughed at, being mocked, being made fun of. Because here's the reality. Even though Zacchaeus does this back then and it was a shameful thing then, it's still a shameful thing today for some of us to be called Christians. Right? Some of us, we have to be embarrassed sometimes, it feels like. Like, one of my favorite things to do is I love comedy. I'm a, I'm a, I love going to comedy shows in New York. And every time I go, I'm, like, so excited, but I'm very nervous because I do not want to get seated in the front row. Because if you've ever gone in the front row, the MC who, like, leads the night, they'll go around and ask, hey, what do you do? And someone will say, I'm a doctor. And they'll make fun of them, blah, blah, and everyone has a good laugh. And I, like, am praying to God that they do not talk to me and ask me what I do. Because I'm just going to lie. I'm going to say, like, I'm a dentist or a nurse or a teacher or something. I don't want to be like, I work in ministry and, like, you know, everybody is like, what? You know, and they just have a field day. I just don't want to do it. Because there's this sense, right, that I... I will be embarrassed if they find out. I have this sense that I still need to hold on to some type of dignity. And that's a silly example, but the reality is true, which is we cannot be in the crowd in this story and in the tree. We have to pick one. And you will be convinced secularism's biggest goal for your life, and honestly, the enemy's biggest goal for your life is to convince you you could do both. That you can be in the crowd, you could be as normal as everybody else, and no one has to know what you believe. And also in the tree, and you can kind of see Jesus. It'll be obstructed, but you can like see him a little bit. We cannot be in both. And I gave the silly example of the comedy show, but like in reality, this is, is probably one of the things I struggle with the most in my life. I remember when I was in high school, I was longboarding uh, with my youth pastor, which is the most California thing you can do. Um, but it's very normal where I come from. And... 
and we were just talking, and, and, and not in a mean way or in any way that I felt threatened, but in a very loving way. My youth pastor, we were talking about my discipleship and my faith, and he just said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, Daniel, for you, you want to be liked more than you want to be faithful. And it was just one of those moments where, like, you feel so seen in the worst way, you know, because it's true. I really want to be liked by people who don't know Jesus. I don't know why. And so sometimes I'm more, I feel more of a tendency to be in the crowd. But I know I have to let go of my identity and my dignity and climb that tree. And I know it's not just me. I know we're in this together. There are people we want to impress. There are things that we desire in life that will sometimes conflict with our faith. And so the question I want to ask us is, what is preventing us from climbing the tree? Like when you think about it in your life, what commitments, what identities and habits and hobbies, or if it's people and relationships or thoughts or trauma or hardships that are preventing you from seeing Jesus fully? Because we all have them. There are all certain things that we have in our own life that are preventing us from seeing Jesus. What might it be for you. Now, the application here is not go straight to Times Square and get a bullhorn and start screaming at people about Jesus. That's not the application. But what is the application is we will need to forsake some of our, if not all of our identities, if we want to follow Jesus well. And, and your first response to that shouldn't say, yeah, of course, it should be why is Jesus so worth forsaking my identity? And if we keep reading, we're going to find out. In the next few verses, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus and he tells him in verse 5, he says, Zacchaeus, you need to hurry. You need to hurry and come down here right now. And I want you to notice this. Jesus literally never says the word hurry in the New Testament except for right here. Like nothing about Jesus embodies hurry. I don't know if you noticed this. And every story, like when G, the height of Jesus' ministry, thousands of people want to get next to them. They, they hear that he's doing miracles. The disciples are like, Jesus, we need a press release. They're swarming us. What do we do? Jesus is like, I'm going to go pray for a few days. Bye. Like he doesn't, he didn't care at all. No rush. When there's a storm and like disciples think they're going to die, Jesus is asleep. He like could care less. He has no hurry in him whatsoever. But the moment he sees Zacchaeus, he says, you need to hurry. Why? Because we got to hang out. I must stay at your place. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. Sometimes we have a habit where we read the New Testament and we, and we know what happens in the end. We know that Jesus dies and he resurrects and it's going to be a happy ending. But you got to remember at this point, people don't really understand what Jesus is doing. They're so confused by him. And so this crowd is trying to figure out what is this Jesus all about? We can, okay, he's healing people, but what is he really all about? And in front of everybody, Jesus goes to the person who is the most outcast, the most shameful, and he says, you are the most important person to me right now. Jesus says, do you want to, crowd, do you want to know what I'm about? I'm about the person you hate the most. What a lesson there. Now, I want us to imagine how Zacchaeus felt. First of all, not now and not then did Jewish rabbis typically invite themselves over. It's not a practice that was done. 
But think about Zacchaeus for a minute. That someone went up to him and said, I want to spend time with you. Zacchaeus' first response might have been something like, man, no one ever even looks me in the eye. Like my own people hate me desperately. And yet this Jesus, he wants to come over to my house. I've never had anybody over at my house. I kept thinking about what Zacchaeus must have felt like this week. And I was reminded of a story that I remember seeing as a kid, and it has become famous now, actually. But my dad, growing up, he had uh, season tickets to, like, what was our local Brooklyn Cyclones, like the team that's, like, not even close to MLB, but you can go for, like, $3. And he had season tickets, which were probably, like, $10 for the whole season tickets. But, um, and they were the Visalia Oaks. And there was this one season where they had a, a pretty hefty ball player, like, noticeably hefty playing, playing some baseball. His name was Jeremy Brown. And he was terrible. I mean, he was like one of the worst batters I've ever seen. And it kind of became a thing during the season. It was like, Jeremy's up. Like, let's go get some snacks now because nothing's going to happen. And Jeremy goes up to bat. And like, God came down. It's a miracle. He hit the ball. And it looked like he was going to be able to get to first. And he runs to first. And, and he's doing the move in baseball when you see that they're rounding to go to second. And everyone was like, Jeremy's going to go to second. And then, and the moment when you're like, oh my gosh, Jeremy's going to second, he hits the first base and he falls and he trips. And then he gets up and he crawls in the dirt. He crawls in the dirt and he gets back to first and he's safe. And everybody in the crowd is laughing at him. But do you know why they're laughing? Because Jeremy hit a home run and he didn't realize it. And I have to think that is a little bit of what Zacchaeus felt like. That Zacchaeus had this shame that was always on him. And he was just in the tree doing the thing that he would, he would do. But Jesus sought him out and made him feel like a million bucks. Like that sense of awe of like, oh my goodness, is how Zacchaeus must have felt. And why I want to draw attention to that is because when you think about the God that we follow, Jesus when he came to earth, he knew exactly that he had three years to do his public ministry, meaning that he needed to do things and do them quickly. He knew that his time was ending, but the people that he chose to spend his time with weren't the most elite and weren't the people that had the most money, but it was the people who were the most shameful. That is the Jesus that we follow. And what I want to tell us is that as we look at Zacchaeus and we can really other him and say, yeah, that sounds like a terrible person. Jesus did a good thing to Zacchaeus. Is I want to tell us that we are all Zacchaeus. And what I mean by that is that we have all done shameful things and we have all had shameful things done to us. We've been laughed at, abused, mocked by the crowd in the same way. Maybe not to the same degree, but we know the type of shame that Zacchaeus might have felt. And as I was looking at this story this week, I saw Jesus do something. And I just, it's not necessarily explicitly there in the text, but it just made me think that Jesus saw Zacchaeus on a tree that was so emblematic of shame. And he saw the crowd laughing at him, making fun of him. And every bone in my body as I read that makes me think Jesus went to Zacchaeus and said, only one of us will hang on a tree and be laughed at by the crowd and it will not be you. 
that only one of us will carry shame, but it's not going to be you. Rather, I will take your shame, so why don't you come down off that tree and I'll get on it for you? Do you see, that is the kind of God that we follow. The one who takes on shame, not merely acknowledges it. The one who will go on the tree for you so you don't have to. The one who will sit there, let the crowd make fun of him, mock him, slap him, beat him, so that they won't do it to you. Reminded me of 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Zacchaeus was given an opportunity, an opportunity of a lifetime. And what I want you to notice is his response. It says in verse 6, Zacchaeus says exactly what Jesus says. He hurries down and he receives him joyfully. Now, if I was Zacchaeus, my, my tendency would be to make excuses for my actions when I got down from that tree or, or to explain how much I don't deserve it. When he says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come over, I would say, oh, no, Lord, you, you don't want to come to my house. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how these people think about me. I would tend to give excuses. But Zacchaeus gives us a model and what it looks like to be a believer because in his shame, he runs to Jesus, not away. I had a professor one time, and he was asking me questions. He says, hey, when you are in, whenever you commit a sin, think of a sin that you commit. Whether you're in a conversation and, and you say something that you knew you shouldn't have said, but you said it, or you hurt somebody that you love, or you just did something you knew you shouldn't have. He said, how long does it take for you to like really seek God in repentance? And I said, man, I, if, I'm, if I'm actually honest, if shame is high, it's like three business days. Like it, it takes me a while to get back to regular until I feel like I can pray again. Especially if it's reoccurring and I'm like, oh, I've just been repenting about this for decades. And he said, every time that you sin and don't run to Jesus, you are showing how much you don't understand the gospel. Because it is when you are in sin that you are still fully accepted if you are in Christ. And if you understand the gospel clearly, you will know that when you sin, the only right response is to run to Jesus, not away. That is the time to hurry and receive grace quickly. So let me ask us, is this the type of Jesus that we follow? Are we doing this? When we are in sin, when we are in shame, and Jesus calls us to receive him, do we run to him? Do we receive him gladly, or is our tendency to run from him? Do we desire to carry shame until we feel like we're ready? Or do we realize we need to give it over to God who has paid for it all? Is this the Jesus that we follow? Brennan Manning, one of my favorite Christian authors, talking about in terms of how do we run to God or how we feel guilty with, in our relationship with God. He says this beautiful line. He says, Christianity happens when men and women accept with unwavering trust that their sins have been not only forgiven, but forgotten, washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Thus, Archbishop Joy Reyes says, a sad Christian is a phony Christian. And a guilty Christian is no Christian at all. Now, that's a harsh ending there, but you get the point. Now, 
I want to close this in the last few verses to look at how Zacchaeus responds to all of this. And what we see here in the last few verses, especially verses 8 and 10, is we are seeing the fruits of someone who becomes a believer. Because what does Zacchaeus do as soon as he comes down from that tree? He says, Lord, whatever I own, half of it is going straight to the poor. And whatever I've taken from anybody, I'm going to give it back at a rate of 400% interest. Now notice, Jesus has not said anything. Jesus just says, I want to have a sleepover. He doesn't say, but first, he doesn't say anything. Zacchaeus just starts doing it. And what Zacchaeus is embodying is that you don't obey in order to be loved. You are loved, so you obey. Do you see that? Do you see that distinction? One commentator put it this way in terms of how Jesus responds to Zacchaeus. He says, notice, Jesus didn't say, if you live like this, then salvation will come to this house. No, it has come. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to salvation, offered as a free gift. You see, he does not need to do things to earn Jesus' favor. Jesus is already coming over. But he works in response of that. Do you see the difference? But for many of us, if we're honest, the way that we atone for our own shame is we do really good things, especially those of us who are Christian in the room. We do really good things to mitigate the shameful feelings that we have. That we do the opposite of what Zacchaeus does, which is we might serve in church. We might even give and help a local nonprofit. But if we're honest, some of us, we, we might do it just to feel good about ourselves. Just to feel an ounce of, okay, I'm a little less bad. But if we do that, and, and to some degree we all do, we are guilty of what T.S. Eliot calls the greatest sin, which is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest writers of the, 19th, or the 20th and 21st century, when he was asked, what is the greatest threat to Christianity? Everyone was expecting him to say some modern problem, theological, whatever it may be. And his response was so epic. It was very similar to what we're talking about. This is what he said. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Let me paraphrase for you. Shame will drive us to work. Worship will drive us to the gospel. If we are filled with shame, we will do things that many people will applaud and say it's great, but it will always be to earn something. But if we truly get the gospel, we will understand we will do great things, but in response to being loved, not in order to be loved. And if we get that, it will dramatically change how we live and move in our faith. So here's my question for us. What do we do, you and I, 
what is the thing we do in our life in order to be loved? What is the thing that we are always trying to earn God's favor in? Whether it's our performance at work or in school or it's the salary that we make or the friendships that we have or the relationships that we continue. What is the thing that we are doing to try to earn God's favor even though we already have it? For many of us, it could be very different things, but we all have something. There is a primary motivator for a lot of us that we are trying to earn rather than receive. One of my friends, he uh, introduced me to the term of updating my mental map. I remember going to him and I was telling him that, this a few years ago, whenever I had conflict with somebody, like conflict in a relationship or whatever, I had tendencies to revert back to my childhood. I would kind of get scared and shut down and not say as much. And he said, well, it's easy. You just need to update your mental map. He says, when you get into conflict, you just revert to a child. But you got to remind yourself that you're an adult, that you can make autonomous decisions, that you can speak up. You have to tell your mental map, I am an adult, no longer nine. And for many of us, this is also true in our own faith, that we don't need to earn anymore. We have been given all that we will ever need. Now, we're not opposed to effort. Effort is good. But we don't have to earn. We don't need to do things in order to be loved by God. We are already loved. There's a, a really good show called The West Wing. And in The West Wing, there's a scene where one of the campaign managers, um, he, he, basically the campaign manager was crazy. He was staying up super late. He was doing everything they could to win this race for the White House. And they ended up winning. And the campaign manager is very successful. And yet when they start to transition and go into the White House and begin to take on new responsibilities, the same campaign manager, he can't make the switch. And he's still living in campaign mode. And he's driving everybody crazy. And they pull him aside and they say, hey, you got to make the transition. We're not campaigning anymore. We're governing. And I think for a lot of us, what would happen if God could, could grab us right now? He would say, hey, 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 we're not earning anymore. It's finished. We have to make the switch. It's always good to do good deeds. It's always good to serve and to give and to do things that people think are noble. But it matters deeply in the way in which you do it. If you believe in some way or some other that it can add or take away from God's love from you, it will miss the mark completely. We need to update our mental map and realize we're no longer earning. It is finished. And so in the beginning, I asked us, what is the message of Christianity? When I opened this text a few weeks ago, I just left and I said, man, if I could show my neighbors and my coworkers and my friends who don't love Jesus, if I could just show them this story, I would say, this is it. That God, he goes after those who are considered shameful, those whom we have outcasted. And he says to them, you are most important to me. I want to spend time with you. So much so, I will remove you from that tree and put myself up on there. And in response, we don't have to earn God's love, but we can live life because of it. And I think that is the beautiful message of Christianity. And I think if we learn to not only read the story and admire it as a church, but live it out, it'll dramatically change our coworkers' lives, our friends' lives, our families' lives. So as you hear this story and as you read this story about Zacchaeus' shame and God's transforming power of it, realize it's true for us too. It's true for us too.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in the midst of our shame, you don't run from us, but yet you run to us. That when we feel this sense that we shouldn't be near you or we feel any type of guilt or shame, you come to us and say, you, I want to spend time with you. God, thank you that you didn't just seek those who were elite, but you came to the outcasts and the marginalized. Thank you that you pursued us and you loved us. And because of your love for us and your death on the cross, we can now say it is finished and live our faith from that posture. God, I pray that you would help us as a church, as a people, to look at the life and model of how you changed Zacchaeus and say, Lord, do it again for my life. Do it again for my life. God, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.